Hello, hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of Overpowering Emotions, where I talk all things big emotions, emotion regulation, anxiety, resilience. I was going to move on from our trauma series, but I actually have had a lot of feedback from our listeners just wanting to hear a little bit more about building those connections. And I think that we all know we need to build these connections and secure attachments, but just looking at things from different angles, there's just a few considerations. And, and so knowing that that connection is so important, right? And that it's so important to, to learn how to tolerate and to regulate our own emotional responses and just building, you know, secure attachment and mitigating our trauma vulnerabilities. I was okay spending one more episode just on that relationships piece and really creating that sense of safety. Probably all things that we know, but but it is a, a very important topic. It's very multifaceted as well, this whole process. And it requires a deep understanding, especially understanding each kiddo's unique experiences and their triggers. So I really want to just dig into this a little bit more before we move on away to other topics. Now, the angle that I want to take today is really about recognizing how everyone has their own distinct set of genes and their own distinct set of life experiences, that's really important if we're going to be building safety. Now, I, I think we all know the significance of empathy. And part of this is acknowledging that the same situation, and I talked about it last time, so we've got two kiddos in the exact same situation, it can be interpreted differently by everyone through our unique perspectives. So the examples that a lot of you know experts in the field will highlight show how even seemingly positive gestures or acts of care, like an adult who wants to help a child, that can actually trigger trauma responses in certain individuals. And so that's why I wanted to take this angle in particular. It's the one that I've had a lot of questions about. But we see it in everyday situations too, where an adult will do things like minimize a child's experience by telling them to calm down. It's not a big deal. There's even lessons on big versus little deals, right? That we're that we're trying to teach our kiddos. But it is a big deal to the kiddos. We can teach them until we're blue in the face the difference between a big versus little deal, but that's based on our perception. For them, oftentimes a big deal is a big deal deal for them, right? And and they can't use their whole brain to process the situation the same way an adult. We we can see that it's a little deal because our whole brain is communicating with itself to say, like, this is not a big deal. But when their emotional brain takes over, they don't have the capacity to do that. The different parts of our adult brains are helping each other, you know, put things into perspective to see the big pictures, they simply can't do it. And that's why it's a big deal. And we don't want to minimize that. So recognizing this diversity in perspective, that's really crucial for building safety and establishing really meaningful connections. And that's why embracing empathy and open-mindedness is so important so that we can create that environment that values and respects their individual perspectives, not what we think is best or what's going to be most comfortable for us or whatever else is going on. Even if they seem, you know, like a little deal to us, we are still going to create that this is actually really helpful for any adult working with any kiddo, right? We got to remember to be open-minded and empathetic and validating, even if it's just their cookie broken half. Not even that it fell on the ground. It's just broken half. You're popping half of it in your mouth anyway, not a big deal. But for them, it really can be. But when we're looking at traumatic experiences, it can have a really profound impact on how someone interprets 
and responds to certain situations. These experiences really create deep imprints on their minds. It can influence their thoughts, their emotions, and their behaviors. And so when someone has experienced trauma, their perception of the world and even themselves, it can become distorted, right? And so they've got these altered interpretations of events and heightened emotional reactions. So for example, if someone has experienced a traumatic event involving a dog attack, (laughs) like I have, they might develop a fear of dogs and, and the belief that dogs are not safe. So whenever they encounter a dog, even a really friendly, obviously friendly and harmful one who's rolled on his back and like, uh, you know, hanging a tongue out and just panting, just wants belly rubs, that person can interpret it as a threat and they might respond with intense fear or panic. Even if they're just being silly and rolling in the ground, rolling in poo, right? That could be seen as really scary. And so for us to say, what are you talking? Like, they're just having fun. Look at them, right? It's not a big deal. That's not very helpful. That interpretation is based on any past traumatic experiences and their brain's adaptive response to try to protect themselves from potential harm. So in my experience, I've been attacked by a dog so bad that I had to be hospitalized when I was a baby. I don't have conscious memories of that, but boy, my my inner brain has definitely created those associations that dogs are dangerous. I've created new pathways to teach me that dogs are actually generally safe, but I didn't know. I didn't have conscious awareness. So we don't even know, you know, maybe there was a traumatic experience or something scary that we don't even know about that could be contributing to this heightened sort of reactive response. Similarly, individuals have experienced emotional abuse. They might have difficulty trusting others, right? They might interpret innocent actions or innocent gestures as being manipulative or threatening, And so that's really going to disrupt any future relationships. Their past experiences shape their perception of relationships and of people and and the belief that people are generally untrustworthy, right? And so now they're going to have this heightened vigilance, heightened wariness in any of their interactions with others. They're always going to see what's the underlying, you know, motive here. That impact of trauma on our interpretation and response isn't limited to specific events. It can really extend to broader situations. So if you've had a kiddo who's experienced repeated failures, for example, they might interpret any new challenge as just completely out of their capacity. And so that can just lead to this overwhelming sense of helplessness and avoidance of any new opportunities. So their past experiences have influenced their belief system that I can't handle it. And and so now they've created this sort of negative filter through which that they're going to view any present and future circumstances. So recognizing that impact of trauma on our interpretation and our response is really crucial for understanding and supporting our kiddos. And that's why the empathy and patience and non-judgmental attitude and the Um, safe and supportive environment. I mean, that's so important to help them reframe their interpretations and to develop those healthier coping mechanisms. So now that I've had two of my own big dogs, I've learned, I've had lots of opportunities to reframe my interpretation, to understand what dog body language is and to know what is actually menacing. And I've not actually really come across any other menacing dogs in my life. They're all so friendly. 
but each person's, you know, their, their experiences and their coping mechanisms are really unique. And so I've said it before, it takes time to build that trust and create a safe space for that exploration and growth. Now, one thing that's really important in, in this journey is that we might, you, you know, see um, someone as being really harmless or really positive, really friendly. So to one person, we might see this fantastic person who's so engaging and so outgoing, right? But that same person could be really traumatizing, really distressing for another person. So we got to be mindful of those differing interpretations and we want to avoid re-traumatizing our kiddos unintentionally. Even acts of care, that's kind of what I started this 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 episode on even acts of care acts of kindness well-intentioned gestures to show that i love you can unknowingly trigger trauma right and 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 trigger the trauma response in kiddos if they've got that history of trauma a smile a comforting touch excessive kindness that can unintentionally remind them of past painful experiences so we need to be careful that we're adjusting our approach and finding alternate ways to offer support and a lot of times like even just think you know if, if i think of kiddos who've been physically abused or sexually abused or someone's lured them in and then we're hurt right it's usually kindness and i'm i'm offering and i'm smiling and I'm, you know, doing all of these things to make you feel loved. And then I hurt you. So we got to be very careful. So genuine kindness. Yeah, it can be a very good thing, but it can create a huge sense of vulnerability and it can create these feelings of overexposure for kiddos who've experienced trauma. Acts of kindness can trigger really complex emotions and thoughts. It's so confusing, right? And and they might have developed these coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms to protect themselves from any further harm. So up goes the walls. Out comes the aggression as soon as you're nice to me. They might question the intentions of this kindness, right? And if we're always wondering about, you know, are there strings attached? Are we going to be let down? Are we going to be hurt in the end? It's really hard for them to trust and to fully embrace that kindness that's being offered. It's really hard for them to let that that guard of cautiousness and suspiciousness of others' motives to go down. And so then that's already just going to create a stiffness and in the relationship and a difficulty being able to attach. So that brings me to this, what's called paradox of care and triggers. So the paradox is, on the one hand, providing the care and support that's essential for the healing process. But then on the other hand, you know, some of those actions and situations can really unintentionally trigger that traumatic response and just worsen any of their distress that they experience. And this paradox arises when kiddos have developed a heightened sensitivity to certain triggers due to those past traumatic experiences. Now they can trigger, or the triggers can vary from person to person. I I, I don't know what that is, right? It's anything that can remind them of the traumatic event. It could be a sound, it could be a smell, it could be something that they see, a color, it could be certain words, certain gestures. So when they're exposed to these triggers, they might experience a range of both, you know, like the physical sensations, the physical reactions and the the feelings, right? It could be anxiety or panic or anger. They might dissociate. So it's really important that we're aware of and sensitive to some of those triggers. 
So even when our intention is to provide comfort and assistance, we could inadvertently activate that traumatic response. And it's our responsibility to take accountability. It's not like I was just trying to be nice. We don't want to put the blame back on them, right? We And we for sure don't want to make them feel threatened or unsafe. Um, so a kiddo, like I said, you know, a kiddo who's been physically abused, they might have a trigger related to sudden movements or raised voices. I have two rescue dogs and my one dog, she was on her own for a good year before we got her. And, and I can tell, like, I know that she was physically abused. And so we couldn't, any sudden movements, even now to this day, we've had her for five years, she still will jump, right? If, if something catches out of the corner of her eye that she wasn't you know, expecting. It took a long time. She would never leave outside of a door. We would have to step back 10 feet away from the door. Otherwise she would never pass through a door. So we just got to be careful, right? Um, Raised voices. So we got to be careful if we start attempting to physically comfort an, a, a kiddo and we are, you know, kind of sudden, we're not pre-warning them. We we stick our hand out to, you know, rub their back or we're speaking loudly to get their attention. That could trigger their traumatic response and just escalate their distress. So it's really important to be aware of these dynamics and approach even kindness and sensitivity with understanding, right? We, we always want to recognize and respect their boundaries, give them the space to allow them to set the pace for accepting and reciprocating kindness. We're focusing on really building a foundation of that trust through consistent and genuine actions that, 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 they're, that are acceptable and something that they can actually take up themselves. So, we got to show, even if we we don't know and we show a kindness and they're distressed, we got to let them know like it's not conditional. It's not fleeting. It's rooted in care and in support. And I'm going to be patient and follow your lead. And you can communicate openly and honestly, you know, that your kindness does come from a place of genuine concern and compassion, but honoring like, hey, I I didn't respect a boundary. I was not aware of this boundary and now I am aware. So thank you for telling me, right? And so it's just our patience and understanding. And especially if they express concerns or reservations, we want to acknowledge and validate that and, and, and validate the emotions and fears that they might experience. Even if we are trying to be kind, I was just trying to be nice. That can be very minimizing. So we want to validate, of course you feel this way. Oh my gosh. Right. So we want to let them know that their feelings are valid and understandable given their past experiences. And we can take accountability for our own selves, even if we were just trying to, you know, approach with kindness. And so again, with anything, we're really showing that empathy and patience so that they can start to gradually embrace those genuine acts of kindness and start to experience the positive effects that they can have in their life and that people can be genuinely kind without wanting to hurt us, without any strings attached. One other thing that I really want to talk about is restraints. Restraints are a major problem. And I, I get that they're used to ensure safety, but they can be really re-traumatizing for kiddos. And especially if there's a history of physical abuse. And I see this all the time, especially in healthcare settings, you know, like a children's hospital, for example, you know, our most aggressive kids are usually the ones who have had trauma in their life. And unfortunately, they're the ones that the security guards are called for or, or, or whatever else. So that's why we really need to make sure we're, we're, 
we're providing this genuine care and safety, we're cultivating that empathy, we're developing trauma-informed practices. So that involves recognizing their escalation cycle, recognizing potential triggers and sensitivities that they might have that could be leading to aggressive behaviors that would ultimately, you know, end in a restraint. So we want to actively engage in that open and compassionate communication and making sure that kiddos feel safe and understood and supported. It's usually when they're not that that problems occur. So to navigate this paradox of care and triggers, we got to prioritize creating that safe and predictable environment. And that involves everything I've already talked about, actively listening, respecting their boundaries, um, getting their input about what helps them feel safe and supported. Um, open and honest communication is key. We want to allow them to express their needs, express their preferences regarding how you want me to interact and show care for you. We're really focusing on empathy and validation so that they feel heard and understood. And so if we're understanding specific triggers associated with their trauma and making sure that they feel heard and understood and feeling safe, we can avoid actions or situations that might activate those traumatic responses in the first place and any potential aggressive sort of reactions as well. And so again, we're incorporating that trauma-informed care. It emphasizes empowerment and choice and collaboration, creating safety. I keep saying it over and over, but hopefully you understand these are the these are the pieces, these are the seeds that we want to make sure it's the foundation, the safety for them. Now, trauma-informed care, I mean, that's a bigger topic than I can get to into this episode, but by by adopting a trauma-informed approach, it's really critical to minimize the occurrence of triggers in the first place. And we're creating that environment that promotes healing and, and resilience. So we got to make sure we're building that safety. And so that requires acknowledging and honoring their diverse perspectives, how they see this, the situation. Everyone has their own experience, interpretation of the experiences. I also want to work, talk about, you know, so we've talked a little bit about restraint and how that can be externalizing, but working with kiddos who do exhibit these externalizing behaviors because they do present really unique challenges in terms of building safety and providing lots of that effective supports. And so with these kiddos, with these big behaviors, they're at way greater risk of re-traumatizing effects, us you know, making their trauma worse. So of course, we have to understand what their externalizing behaviors are all about. So externalizing behaviors, just so we're all on the same page, any actions or expressions that are directed outwardly, such as, you know, aggression, defiance, hyperactivity, you know, it increases everybody else's distress. These behaviors can be really challenging to manage and they can mask a lot of underlying trauma or emotional distress. Recognizing those root causes behind these behaviors is important so that we can build safety and provide appropriate support in the first place. And so, you know, the the tricky place is, and I've already introduced it, but now I want to get into it. The tricky place is when we're working with these traumatized kiddos, um, are situations where safety for themselves or others is at risk that restraints might be needed, right? I hate restraints. I already said it, but if they're being used, we want to avoid it in the first place. I already talked about that, avoiding it in the first place. But if we do need to use them, again, we're approaching it with, with caution and sensitivity. 
Restraint should only ever be used as very last resort, right? There should be very strict rules and guidelines in place that are established wherever you're at. You're not just going to ever just grab a child nilly willy. There has to be established guidelines to minimize any potential harm or re-traumatization. We absolutely 100% have to avoid re-traumatization. That's, that's the most important thing. And restraint in any form <laughs> for some, even just any physical contact, it doesn't even have to be restraint, but a lot of physical contact, it really does have the potential to trigger trauma and, and really reawaken feelings of powerlessness and fear and violation in our traumatized kiddos. And restraint isn't going to be very healing for them because we're just showing them, Hey, you are powerless. We can take control over you whenever we want. So if these restraints are used, again, we need to make sure we're taking a trauma-informed approach where we're prioritizing and creating that sense of safety, the trust, the consent, even in situations that do require physical intervention. And so, you know, a few points into looking at a trauma-informed approach where we, we are focusing on this, again, focus on prevention. We're creating that safe and supportive environment in the first place to minimize the need for any restraint right? And then we're going to be using any de-escalation techniques that we can to help diffuse potentially potentially volatile situations before they escalate. And again, we're creating a sense of safety, calmness, self-regulation, lots of co-regulation, right? That's so important. So providing a calm, non-threatening presence, right? Using calm and reassuring language to help diffuse the tension. we got to disarm any threat here. So that could include speaking in a really soft tone, using very gentle and validating statements, offering empathy and understanding, right? Oh man, I can, I can see that you're really upset right now. It's okay to feel that way. It makes sense. I'm here for you. I'm here to listen when you're ready. Even if they're screaming. We want to demonstrate that attentive listening. We're going to maintain eye contact. We're going to be nodding. We're going to be reflecting back what the kiddo's feelings and what their concerns are, making sure that they feel heard and validated. That's going to help reduce their emotional intensity. Man, it sounds like you're really frustrated and overwhelmed right now. Oh man, it sounds like Susie really upset you. Obviously, that's harder once they're so de- you know escalated that they they can't even hear. This is part of our de-escalation before it gets to that crux, right? We can offer choices to help reset, um, uh, reestablish that sense of control and 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 that sense of autonomy. We're going to reduce that powerlessness. So we might say, "Hey, bud, you know, let's take a short break." Would you like to go into a quiet space by yourself or would you like to have someone stay here with you, right? It could be here. We can go somewhere else. Do you want someone with you? Whatever choices that we can offer, right? Maybe the break isn't an option, but maybe what that would look like could be an option. If they have any calming strategies that have worked in the past, you could start to model some of those and you can use that and support some of that as well. Um, I don't love objects and activities, but, you know, maybe access to objects or activities that really engage their senses, that can promote self-soothing, that can be useful as well. I don't love it, but if if you know that they work, that, that could be helpful. 
The reason I don't like it is kids need to learn how to self-soothe and calm on their own. Like I always say naked in a a shower, right? Because what happens if they're always using a stress ball, but then one day they're in the community and there's no stress ball, ball available, right? So I think that that's important to think about. Part of this too is collaborating with them to develop a safety plan that outlines steps to take when they're feeling overwhelmed or triggered. And I would say, I love doing flow charts of when this happens, this is what we can do, but also for adults, the visual is just as good for adults as well. But for them, it could be identifying supportive person to reach out to. Maybe it's using grounding techniques. Maybe it's engaging in some self-care activity or doing something physical. And you can start with focusing on things that have already helped them in the past. That's what we want to focus on. But I I talk about this is an experiment. I don't know for sure what's going to help. We don't know for sure what's going to help, right? We're going to experiment. The effectiveness of de-escalation tools are really going to vary depending on the person and the situation. And so we're going to play around with it and fine tune it. That's going to be important. Any restraint should only be considered when all other de-escalation techniques, when all other interventions have been exhausted and when there's imminent risk, that's the only time in imminent risk to themselves or, or to others. And I use this as a rule, even with kiddos who don't have tra- traumatic histories either. For sure, restraint should never be punitive. It should never be a means of control. It should only ever be a measure of absolute necessity, right? Necessary to ensure everybody's safety. And if you are going to use it, if you think that that's something that you're going to use with a kiddo, you got to use open and, and transparent communication. Explain the need for the restraint clearly. And when this happens, this is when restraints are going to be used in a way that kiddos understand and and making sure that they understand it's for their safety and that we care for them, right? And and we're going to help them make sense of the situation and the necessity and making sure that they feel like their well-being is the top priority here. That's always the most important. So we want to seek their verbal or nonverbal consent whenever we can, emphasizing that the restraint is temporary. It's solely for their safety. We're respecting their boundaries and, and comfort levels otherwise throughout the whole process. So, you know, when we're looking at explanation, an example could be, um, you know, sometimes when we feel very upset or overwhelmed, our bodies and emotions can become really intense. And it's like having this big wave of feelings that can be so hard to manage. Like last time I talked about getting, we get into this big knot of emotion that's really hard to get out of. And in those moments, it's really important to keep everyone safe, including yourself and anyone around you. And we want to make sure you're doing okay. And restraint is a way to help you. I don't want to say calm down, but it's to help us, you know, detangle from these big emotions and prevent you from accidentally hurting yourself or accidentally hurting somebody else. It's kind of a pause button that's going to give us a chance to take a break and let those big emotions settle down. Restraint is always going to be done by a trained adult who knows how to keep kiddos safe and who knows how to support kiddos until you start to feel better, right? And that you can, until you can start talking about this stuff. When you're in a restrained position, it could be like a gentle hug, right? So you're held securely. It should be comforting. 
And it's just meant to help your body and your mind feel more grounded and to feel safe. It's not meant to be a punishment. It's not meant to make you feel bad or for us to control you. It's a way to create that really calming space where you can regain control and find your calm again. So that's just an example of how we can explain. And I'd also tell them that, you know, restraint is only used when absolutely necessary, when there's no other choice. And and the adults who use it are there to help support you. That's why they're there. They will always explain what they're doing and why, even if the kiddo's screaming, we're going to say, okay, now I'm going to touch you on the shoulder and now I'm going to put you into a bear hug or whatever it is. They're going to talk throughout the whole process and they're going to listen, kiddo. They're going to listen to your feelings and what you need throughout the process. So tell us, tell them what you need. So your goal is to feel better and to feel safe and to be able to tell us how you're feeling and, and to tell us what you need in a healthy way. Restraint is just one way to support you when things get so challenging. And together, we're going to find strategies and tools that are going to help you manage these big feelings when they take over and and just keep everyone and especially you safe. So those types of things, having a script and knowing what you're going to say and collaborating with kiddos is really important. There's no way we're going to be able to say all of that in the heat of the moment when they're freaking out. So it's just important that you have that discussion when when a kiddo is calm and able to hear it. Maybe the very first time they're aggressive, you, you're not aware, and so you're taken off guard and, and you go into this. But then having that conversation after, we're explaining what happened and what's going to happen in the future. And maybe you can create that collaborative sort of um, plan for the future. I would definitely have a visual or some sort of reminder cue in the heat of the moment, especially once you've created that plan, just so you can show them, oh yeah, you know, hitting Hal is here. So this is what we're going to do. We don't even have to say that. They, when we point to it, they're just going to know. But if they're too overwhelmed with emotion, I mean, talking and even pointing to a visual isn't going to be helpful, but we are going to be soothing and just letting them know. And now, and now, and now this is what we're doing. If you are going to use them, I've never had to restrain a child in my life, but if you are going to use them, you always want to use the least restrictive measures possible. Okay. So it could be um, a therapeutic hold. It could be a soft restraint. It could just be the presence of another supportive adult, um, you know, to ensure safety and, you know, we're not causing any unnecessary distress or re-traumatization that I've already talked about that. And then after the restraint, that's going to be really important as well. Once we've used restraint, now we've let them go. We have to absolutely continue providing that supportive and nurturing environment. We're going to offer opportunities for debriefing. We're going to be giving emotional support. We're going to allow them to express their feelings and validate their experiences. Even if they said, I hate you and that wasn't fair, we're not going to try to teach them why we were doing it because we're just minimizing their experiences. We want to validate. Yeah, that was hard. You couldn't move. All your control was taken away. No wonder you were so upset. Then maybe we can collaborate with them to find a different way to cope with the situation and to prevent any future occurrences of restraint ever needing to happen again. Okay, so what can we do, bud? What can we do differently so this doesn't have to happen again? And then just review to see, you know, was that even effective in promoting the kiddo's safety and well-being in the first place? Or did we just cause a whole other, you know, bag of problems? 
So that's really important. And we, of course, got to individualize everything that we do. I'm always talking about that, recognizing that each child's experience of trauma is unique and their response to restraint is going to vary significantly. I actually know a kiddo. So, you know, I did some time in residential program and there was one kiddo who actually sought it out. And so he learned um he he was nonverbal, very, very aggressive, but he learned that aggression would cause restraints and he loved the deep pressure. He loved the restraints. So now we're reinforcing the aggressive behaviors through restraints. It's not, you know, the goal that they were going for with using restraints. We have to be really careful. We have to have a really thorough understanding of what their, their trauma history is, their triggers, their coping mechanisms, all of those things. So we can tailor whatever it is that we're going to do to meet the specific needs of the child. And we're going to always incorporate uh, their input and, and all of their preferences. Now, one other thing is I just want to mention timing. Timing plays an important role in providing effective support as well, right? When we're looking at these. So pushing for immediate changes or rushing through the healing process, that can be really counterproductive and it can be really re-traumatizing. I've already said it, but patience and understanding is key, right? Using a really systematic approach where we're first building that trust and that safety, and then we're going to be gradually introducing coping strategies and we're going to be providing consistent support over time throughout. So again, we're just really understanding, are they ready? right? Are, are they at a place where they can do anything therapeutically? We're never going to be able to use strategies. You could be the best trauma therapist with the best strategies and the best plans. It doesn't matter if they're not feeling trust with you and, and they don't feel safe in this place. Same thing at schools. I can put in the best plans to help support this kiddo, but if they're not feeling that they're safe in class, it doesn't matter what we do. So we really need to invest that time and effort into building that secure and nurturing relationship before addressing anything trauma-related or skill-building, right? And I've talked a lot about that. And I'm dedicating a whole other episode here on it, but it's just so important. Um, we also want to, to approach the timing of disclosure with care. You know, if we're rushing the process of discussing traumatic events, that can be really overwhelming and re-traumatizing too. So we need to make sure that they're feeling comfortable and ready to share their experiences. We need to respect their pace, respect their readiness. We're never pushing them to share anything that they don't want to. So we're going to obviously provide opportunities for them to express themselves, but in a very safe and non-judgmental environment, right? With the understanding that they can choose to disclose their experiences at their own time or never if they don't want to, right? Um, we want to consider their developmental stage of abilities. Younger kiddos might have limited language skills and they might require more play-based sort of creative therapeutic approaches to express and, and to process their trauma. Older kids and teenagers, they might be able to engage in the verbal processing and, and cognitive interventions. But we know, you know, I, with my trauma, you've heard me say, it can't just all be talk therapy just because trauma is stored in the brain and in the body a little bit differently. I just need to adjust here because my leg is seizing the way I'm sitting. Uh, we need to assess their emotional readiness too before we're engaging in certain interventions. So we're never going to get anywhere effectively if they're overwhelmed, if they keep getting so overwhelmed with these big emotions or if they're experiencing, you know, acute, acute distress. So 
we're going to first work on skill building before we expect them to be able to talk about things or to readdress things. They got to learn how to tolerate emotions, work on regulating their emotions before we're delving into any of the deeper trauma work. Trauma also involves considering the readiness and availability, not just of the kiddo that we're, or the individual that we're working with, but what about their caregivers or other professionals or educators or you know, their broader support network. We got to make sure that that support network, they're all on board. They are all ready to provide the necessary support and resources to create that comprehensive, cohesive system of care. So that's really important, you know, making sure we've got those foundations before we move into the trauma work. And once we do move into that trauma work, we're just going to be working gradually and incrementally. We're taking into account the kiddo's ability to tolerate and process those difficult emotions and memories. And so exposure is important. We might take a slower approach. You know me, if you, well, if you've listened to previous episodes, I jump right in at 10. If we can, I'm never going to force a kiddo to go to 10. I'm following their lead with what they want to go. And so it might be slow sort of increase in the level of exposure and the complexity of the, the interventions that we're doing based on their readiness and their resilience. And so it's a more gradual approach, but I still follow their lead. And when I follow their lead, even if they want to jump a little bit higher, that's okay. But we just want to make sure we're avoiding that overwhelm, right? So we're, pro we're promoting the effective coping skills and their resilience along the way. Um, and again, that timing, it's going to vary. Some might show immediate readiness. Yeah, I'm ready. I've been thinking about it. You know, let's jump into this. That progress is really quick, while others, they just might need more time and support. And so we're really flexible and adaptable, right? We're always assessing and reassessing the kiddos' needs, where their progress is, that, that their emotional well-being. So all of that's important. Um, I, I feel like I'm repeating points, but I think you know, if you're hearing it more than once, you need to, it's so important. And I, I can't say it enough when we're working with children and teens, and especially those who exhibit externalizing behaviors, it really requires a care, um, a, a caring, supportive, compassionate approach. Those behaviors, you got to remember, they're, they're a way of expressing themselves. It's their form of communication of unmet needs or unresolved emotions that they can't verbally articulate. And so that's why we really need to prioritize our active listening, our validation, our empathy, our compassion to foster that sense of understanding and connection and trust, right? Every child deserves to feel safe, to feel understood, to feel supported on their journey towards well-being well and healing. The only way that we can make a positive difference in their life is with that patience and empathy and compassion and their commitment to making sure we're addressing their individual needs. So that is a lot. I'm going to leave it here for today. Um, lots to think about. I am going to be shifting away from trauma. I will be coming back to this again in the future, and I am creating my trauma-informed anxiety compass. So definitely stay tuned for that. Um, for any training, because then I deep dive into all of the trauma pieces that you could possibly ever need to know. Otherwise, have a great day. Go help those kiddos be bold and courageous, and I will see you next time.